You would think that after this many years, I would know what the next thing is on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess, when in doubt, we'll pray, okay? You can't beat that. (laughs) Now, the reading that we had from 2 Peter goes along with, with what we're studying in Jude, because remember, Peter says these things are coming, and Jude says they're here. And he warns of those who are going to come, and their destruction is swift, but they come with blasphemy of the truth. And the truth is is the things of God's word. Remember, Jesus says, I am the, the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It also mentions that their greed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words, and we'll see all these things come to fruition as we look at Jude in a moment. But for now, let's remember the words of Jesus, that there is no other way to heaven. There is no other truth. There is no other light than Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, it is not as if we have to go searching for the truth. It is right in front of us. The heavens declare your glory. You have revealed yourself to us in this final form in your Son, in the Word of God, the living Word. And you have provided for us your Holy Spirit that our eyes might be open to this great truth, that we might see the way of salvation that we might know that he is the only way and the only means that we may enter into your presence. In fact, we might come right to the throne of grace, we who are unworthy, we who have plenty of baggage and plenty of issues, but you bid us to come to you, to lay our burdens before you, to take on the yoke of Christ and find that it is easy, and to find that we can experience rest in that yoke. Lord, we each come to this time of worship and this particular time of prayer from things that have gone on throughout the week, struggles, sicknesses, trials, joys, whatever they may be. But we all come before you today, Lord, because you have called us and drawn us here for this particular time for a particular reason, that we might enter into your presence that we might read your word and, and, and know of your glories and, and know of your care for us. That you are not simply the God who sits up there and watches everything go by. You are the one who is personal. You know us by name. You call us by name. You know all the things that we suffer. There is nothing that goes on in our daily lives that you are not acutely aware of. So, Lord, we come to you today and we lay all that we are before you. We pray that we might experience your mercies and grace today. 
that as we worship, the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high, that our eyes and hearts and minds would be focused upon you and upon how you call us to live this grace out in our daily lives. Lord, we come to you not on our own, but because of what Christ has done, not as if we deserve to be here, but we rely upon his work and his grace and his righteousness. So, Lord, we share together the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is our privilege and our opportunity to come before the Lord to worship him and to give back of what the Lord has blessed us with. So I invite the ushers to come forward at this time that we might worship the Lord with our tithes and our offerings.
your gifts and your blessings come in a variety of forms. And you provide them for us that we may use them for your glory. We are grateful for those gifts, Lord. Accept our offerings, however they are made, that they would be pleasing in your sight, that the name of Christ would be lifted high. We ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated.
Well, you get the double block and you got magnify the name. We're hitting all the hitting all the edges of the music world today. The Lord has created them all for us that we might use them for his glory and for his praises. So let's turn to the book of Jude, chapter 11 this morning. Uh, verse 11, sorry. I, you know, I, I, don't, I can't remember the order of things. I can't remember what book we're in. It's just it, the allergies, the fall allergies are here, and, and I'm all clogged up and fuzzy. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking with it. Jude, verse 11. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing it is to know this grace, to know the wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. But Lord, from our passage today, we're going to find there are people who claim to know it, but want to lead us away from it. There are those, Lord, who have not really experienced the change in their life, but they use the things of Christ for their own profit, their own purposes. We pray that we might be wise and gentle, that we would stand uncompromisingly on the things of Christ and the work that's been done in our lives. So, Lord, today we ask that you would open our eyes through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might see these things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Jude, verse 11, and then we're going to be all over the place. So just stay seated. I'm only going to read one one verse here today. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, again, like Jude does so often, he just kind of mentions these things and goes right on, assuming that we have knowledge of each of these things. And I bet um, we do have a good knowledge, at least of Cain and Balaam. If you were in Sunday school at all, you know who Cain is. Balaam, he had a particular donkey who uh, liked to communicate with him when the Lord empowered it. At Korah, mm, that's a little iffier one, but we'll spend some time on Korah and and you'll understand it. Each of these really is an illustration of sin and it's, it's a compounding illustration. Each one gets worse. Each one gets uh, more involved and the punishment for each, as we'll see, is laid out for us in the other passages that we'll look at. Um, now, I know throughout history there have always been enemies of the church and there will always be enemies of the church until Christ returns. Um, And there are people within the church who want to take the truth because their lives have not really been changed and and they're only here like Balaam for their own profit or their own purposes and they want to run with it in their own way away from the things of the Lord. Now none of us are perfect. We each have our moments where we uh, stumble or um, uh, pursue sin or fall into sin, however it is, but the Lord is gracious to forgive when we confess that sin. But there are those, and we have to uh, just face it, there are those who hate the things of Christ, and they will destroy the things of Christ at every opportunity. So here we have three examples, and they are the triumvirate of evil as listed in the Old Testament. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And we're going to look at them all together today. So now remember that a person's heart will be demonstrated in their life. 
The things that they pursue in the world are the things that fill their hearts. You know, don't store up for uh, where you uh, don't store up for yourself. Uh, treasures, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, it's the allergies, it's the allergies. Don't store up for yourself treasures because here they can become moth-eaten and rusted. Store them up in heaven, okay? Store them up in heaven. Well, if our hearts long for heaven, then, and our hearts are full of those thoughts and the things of Christ, then those are the things that will rush out in our words and in our actions. So let's look at these three. Now, first, you've got the way of Cain. There's a progression here. It's, they have gone the way of Cain. They have rushed into the air of Balaam, and they have perished in the way of Coram, in the rebellion of Korah. So there's the path they take. Then there's the escalation of their speed, and ultimately it is their destruction. This is how these false prophets work. Now, let's go to uh, Genesis chapter 4, and first we'll look at the way of Cain. Now, as you recall, there was Adam, and then Eve, and then Abel was the firstborn, and Cain was the secondborn. And then who was the third? Seth. So people in the Sunday school class, because we, we touched on the Seth. You had better gotten that one. Okay, so Seth was the third. Uh, so Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. We'll just touch on Cain for a moment uh, and the issues there. And then, then what we're going to do is try to... I'm going to pick one area that, that I believe the issue of Cain manifests itself in our church today. Not our church, but in the church Verse 1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve. She conceived, gave birth to Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Uh, uh, allergies, I had it reverse, sorry. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of the time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Let me just make it simple. The Lord said, this is the type of offering that I want. Cain did not bring an acceptable offering before the Lord. We also see a little bit of hint in, in, uh, in the New Testament that perhaps Cain's heart wasn't all that right before the Lord. Um, and, and I'm going to guess that Abel's offering was acceptable. Cain's was not acceptable. Cain's got this, uh, if we had to put it in today's word, he's got a little attitude about this in his heart. And he has said, you know what, this is what I do and this is what I'm good at. I know the Lord wants this which was an offering such as Abel brought, a, an animal for a blood sacrifice. And Cain said, but I'm going to give him this one. Well, I know the Lord says bring this, but I'm going to give him this because this is what, what I want to do. And that's the problem with Cain. The Lord makes it clear. He says, do it this way. And Cain says, I'm going to do it my way. Okay? Now, none of us would fall into that category, I'm sure, in any aspect of our lives. But he did what he wanted in the name of worship. Now, that's, that's one of the big problems here. He rejected revelation. He rejected what the Lord said and followed his own desire. He followed his own 
uh, intuition as to what the Lord really wants, and what the Lord really wants looks an awful lot like what I want to do in Cain's mind. So he is the model of the apostate mentality. And the apostate mentality is forget what the Lord says is right. I'm going to do what I think is right. And the Lord will be satisfied with it. Unfortunately, that's not the way that it works. Sin dominated Cain. Self-will dominated Cain. He invented, in a sense, his own kind of worship. And, And if there were no patterns set for him ahead of time, if there was no word from the Lord as to what was expected, then we might say that's okay. But the Lord says, this is what I want. This is acceptable worship for me. And Cain says, great, I'm going to give you this because it's acceptable to me. Ah, and that's the problem. The Lord then rejected that selfish type of worship. Cain is the prototype apostate. He is religious, but he is not obedient to the Lord. And there is a large difference. So he comes before the Lord, offers this wrong offering, and then anger arises within him against those who did give the right offering. Okay? Uh, You know, if I'm Cain, I'm mad at Abel because he was obedient and the Lord liked his offering and accepted his offering and here I am being disobedient and instead of getting angry at myself and upset with myself and my own selfishness I take it out on Abel and if Cain could have gotten his hands around the Lord's throat I think he would have gone for the Lord but he couldn't get to the Lord so he killed his brother Abel the next closest thing. Remember, Jesus says, they will hate you because they hated me first. Cain hated Abel. Cain hated God because God accepted that. He couldn't get to God, so he went after Abel. Well, we are called to worship, not in a self-styled fashion, but in a fashion that is pleasing to God. So I'm going to quote here from Derek Thomas, who is a, uh, uh, a, a pretty good guy. Derek says, it is difficult to see why anyone who values the authority of Scripture would find a principle, find such a principle objectionable. And that principle is, God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. Okay? It's not, is not the whole of life itself to be lived according to the rule of Scripture. But things are rarely so simple. After all, the Bible does not tell me whether I may or may not be blessed by listening to a Mahler symphony or by collecting classic cars. But there are well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians who would say with dogmatic confidence that these violate God's will. Scripture lays down certain specific requirements, specific requirements such as do not neglect the gathering together of the body of Christ. That's a specific requirement. So you say, I really want to go to church today. I'm certainly able. My car starts. I can get up. But I'll just sit home and read the paper and, and I'll listen to the Baptist guy on the radio and that'll be good enough. Lord says, no, you need to go and be part of the body of Christ, the gathering together. That's a specific requirement. Don't neglect that. A general principle within Scripture would be offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, okay, that all of life is to be lived before the Lord. So clearly all of life is regulated by Scripture, whether by express commandment, prohibition, or by general principle. The judgment pronounced upon Cain's offering 
suggestive as it is that his offering or his heart was deficient according to God's requirement. The first and second commandments show God's particular care with regarding to worship. The incident of the golden calf, teaching as it does that worship cannot be offered merely in accord with our own values and our own tastes. The story of Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. Remember they offered strange fire before the Lord. The Lord killed them because of that. God's rejection of Saul's worship, it was not prescribed. Saul did it in the wrong way. He was not in a position to do that. All of these indicate a rejection of worship offered according to values and directions of our own desires, of our own desires. At one point, Paul characterizes the worship going on in the church at uh, Colossae as self-made religion. Okay? I want to do it this way. God will take it, won't he? God will accept it. Not if he says he wants it in some other way. So let me finish the quote from Derek Thomas. What needs to be in worship? Well, particular elements of, elements of worship are highlighted in Scripture. The reading of the Bible, the preaching of the Bible, the singing of the Bible, the praying of God's word, the uh, sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are not free, he says... For example, to have performing clowns mime the Bible lesson in worship. That would not be an acceptable portion of worship. But neither are we to follow a cookie-cutter liturgical sameness. In adherence to Scripture, there is enormous room for variation in matters that Scripture has not specifically addressed. So if Scripture doesn't say you've got to do it this way, then there's a lot of freedom to do it. But if scripture says, bring me an offering of an animal, then you better bring the Lord an offering of an animal, okay? But as we know, reading obviously from the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. There's no sacrifice needed, no blood sacrifice needed now, except there is that one sacrifice that I mentioned earlier, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Okay, um, let me finish up. So, so uh, within this principle, whether it, there's no, uh, uh, you might, uh, you, you oh, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm all foggy here. So within worship, we can have contemporary or traditional songs. We can have three verses of scripture read. We can sing three songs instead of two songs. We can have a long prayer. We can have short prayers. We can have a single cup. We can have many cups. We can have wine or we can have juice. As long as we do it, as Paul says, and as Presbyterians are wont to do, as long as we do it how? Decently and in order. Okay? So that applies to worship. Cain didn't want to do it that way. He wanted to do it his own way. And that was not acceptable before the Lord. So that's our first illustration of an apostate and the judgment that comes upon him. Cain wanted to do it his own way, and he didn't make it. The second one is the story of Balaam. And now the story of Balaam is spread out between Numbers 22, 23, 24, uh, all the way to Numbers 31. So I'm not going to read the story, but I will give you the, uh, uh, the cliff notes of the story. Uh, Just remember that he is the only person in history who has had a donkey rebuke him. And if you've got to get instructions from your donkey, you're in pretty big trouble. Okay, pretty big trouble. 
So Israel is about to enter Canaan after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they're moving towards the land of Canaan, and they're running into these tribes and these peoples who are resisting them. And they run into one in particular, a tribe named Moab. And Balak is the king of Moab. And so here you have these, this mass of people coming across your land, and they believe the Lord has given it to them. So Balak wants all the help he can get in resisting the Israelites, resisting the people of God. So he finds himself a prophet of note and wants that prophet to curse Israel. And that prophet's name is Balaam. And Balaam is a prophet for profit, basically. He is available to the highest bidder. Now, how do we know this? Well, not just from Scripture, but we also have some historic evidence from tablets that describe, Balaf, that describe Balaam as being famous in that part of the world and would hire himself out as a prophet. Now, it's a good gig if you can get it, I would think. Okay? Now, Randy, will you come over and, um, you know, uh, curse the, the crabgrass in my yard? Okay? I'll give you 10 bucks to do that or something like that. Well, uh, if it doesn't work, well, I got my 10 bucks. Okay? That's what I'm after. So, here we have Balaam, and he's a strange mixture of this prophet for hire but also a prophet who listens to the Lord. And we'll see that in a moment. So Balak wants him to curse Israel, and Balaam does something strange. He says, okay, wait here, let me go check with the Lord, and I'll see if it's okay that I would curse his chosen people. That's what he does. So naturally he comes back, God has said no. Well, um, so Balaam says, no, I can't do that. So the representatives of Balak go back to Balak, And Balak says, what do you mean he's not going to do that? Offer him more money. So the representatives go back to Balaam and say, we will give you $20 to curse the crabgrass, okay? He said, we'll give you the highest honor in all of this if you will simply curse these people of God. Well, it's a pretty good offer. And Balaam has to think about it. Now, God has already said no. But Balaam says, well, why don't you guys wait here overnight, and I'll see what the Lord says tonight. So in a dream, the Lord comes to him and says, all right, you can go with these people, but you can't curse my people. And Balaam says, okay. So off he goes. Now, on each of the inquiries that Balaam makes before the Lord, he is submissive to the things of the Lord. And the Lord talks to Balaam in some fashion here. Okay, whether it is in a dream or whether it is uh, in a voice. So on our first reading here, you might think that, hey, hey, maybe Balaam's a good guy. I know he's a necromancer. He talks to the dead and things like that. But maybe he's a good guy. Well, Balaam winds up having a very strange encounter with his donkey who speaks to him. And the one very, very, one thing that is very apparent is that he is a prophet for hire, and he is driven by covetousness, the things that he wants, okay? And that takes precedence over the word of God, and that is trouble. Now, he restrains himself from cursing Israel, and that means he's lost his money. So he's got to come up with another way to get money. So he kind of, and I'm giving you the short version of all those chapters, 22 through 31. So he comes up with a new way, and he goes to the women of Moab and says, ladies, why don't you go 
intermarry with the Israelites, okay? And as you intermarry with the Israelites, draw them into your idol worship, and that will pull them away from the Lord. The Lord will be angry, and he will bring judgment upon the people. And they were like, yeah, that sounds good to me. So that's what goes on. And everything seems to be fine until they get to uh, chapter 31, which is the end of um, Balaam. And it tells how God punished those who seduced his people. And I'll just quote here. And they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord. Okay? So that's what happened. Finally, Balaam wins, he thinks, and the Lord strikes him dead because he took this group of people and led them astray. Okay? Cain, sin. Balaam, pursues it and there's more people that are affected by his sin there's a greater portion now what he did was seduce the people of Israel into immorality so you have one man's sin then you have another man's sin which impacted more lives and he is described in second Peter which we read earlier now there are many modern self-styled canes who want to worship in the way that they want to worship they have their own interpretation of the Bible, they, or they deny the Bible, and they invent their own insights. And we have plenty of Balaams out there who are willing to, you know, be, be a preacher for hire, to, to do the things of God in order to make money. Uh, now, we used to joke about semin- in seminary that we all went into ministry to make money, uh, and, and we knew that that was not a, a reality. Um, you go and do certain things because the Lord calls you into them. Now, that is not to deny that there are plenty of people who do go into ministry to make money. In the church today, we tolerate Balaam in some of these ways. You know, those guys up there, they say some good things. They say some good things. They use the Bible. Now, I know all of what they say doesn't jive with Scripture, but... But look how big their church is. Look at the vastness of the impact of their ministry. They must be okay. But when you look at their doctrines, when you look at what they really teach, not the flash, but what they really teach, the doctrines give them away. They're corrupting the church, and they may not even purposely do that, but they're corrupting the church by the pursuit, like Balaam, of money. Now, the, the issue is not whether there are some good teachings. There are plenty of false teachers who make no distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Their energies are devoted to the things of man-made decisions and man-made doctrines. Turn to Revelation 2, and we'll, we'll look at this. That we're warned about this specific thing in Revelation 2. This is a letter to one of the seven churches. And and each of the seven churches has its own issue. Uh, Some are legalistic. um, Some have simply forgotten the Lord. Some have moved on to other things. And the one we're going to look at begins in chapter 2, verse 12. And this is the church at Pergamum. 
And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword does, says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So that, that's a good thing. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So this is the teaching, the doctrine of Balaam. And now, now this is how many thousands of years later that this has surfaced again. And it is a category of teaching, which means don't worry about worshiping the Lord. Let's go over here and worship these idols. Let's involve ourselves in activities that the Lord says not to be involved with. And let's pursue that. So this church was tolerating some of that within its midst. It would almost be as bad as as, as the, uh, uh, the writing in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells the church at Corinth, it's this You've got somebody within your church who's having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother, and you won't kick him out? Okay? You've got to kick him out. Okay, that's sin. You can't have that kind of sin unaddressed within the fellowship. So Jesus himself, basically, is calling this church on the carpet for not running off those people who have this false teaching and who are leading them astray. Let's go to number three and turn to Numbers chapter 16. Now remember the third one. We've got Cain, we've got Balaam, and now we've got Korah. Korah. And Korah led a rebellion. So here we have Cain, which affects pretty much himself. And then we have Balaam, which attempts to lead more people astray by his uh, corruption. And now we have the rebellion of Korah. And because of this rebellion, the rebellion of one man and, and kind of his two partners in it, and we'll, we'll see their names in a moment, Dathan and Abraham, Abiram, 15,000 people were killed or died because of their rebellion. Now, in the immediate context, 250, but as a result of all their sin, 15,000 perished. So he talks about this rebellion of Korah. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So that makes Korah a Levite. Okay, And who were the only ones who could be priests? The Levites. Remember that. Son of Levi with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, Cain, go back to the first one, Cain was there in the you know from almost the beginning and there he is he should have known the Lord. He had every opportunity to be obedient to the Lord, but he wasn't. Balaam 
heard the Lord speak, either in dreams or in an audible voice. He should have known better, but he did not. Korah was a Levite, part of the priestly line. He should have known better, but he did not. Okay, each one of these people wants their own selfish thing. Cain wanted to worship in his own way. Uh, Balaam wanted uh, was, was covetous for money. And here we have Korah who wants power, basically. He wants authority. And he says to Moses, you have no business being the authority. It's time for everybody to have power and everybody to have authority. Now, he should have known better because the Levites understood. Only the Levitical line could go before the Lord. So when you see this word, uh, they have uh, risen up among the leaders. This is the word rebellion that we will use. And that, in the Greek, in, in Jude, it talks about antilogia. Antilogia, that's the word for rebellion, which means anti-word. Anti-word. So what cores, the heart of Korah's rebellion was against the word of God, was against the law of God. So his heart certainly was not right before the Lord. So some people will event, event their own self-styled religion. Some will attempt to seduce others away from the Lord. And some will inevitably attack true believers like Korah. Now let me again read verse 3. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, to some degree, it sounds like Korah had this view of the priesthood of all believers in mind. He said, well, aren't we all the same before the Lord? Well, good Presbyterians, we understand that I am not any closer to the Lord than anybody else who is an engineer or a teacher. We are all the same before the Lord. We have different gifts okay, and different abilities. But there is no hierarchy. I am not somehow, you know, just a little tick below the Lord. Well, if it was me, it would be a little bit more than that, okay? But we are all saints. That's the way we are looked upon in Scripture and before the Lord. Now, you can grow closer to the Lord, but you don't get any more higher on a spiritual hierarchy. Okay? Well, that's not what Korah is after here. He does not understand it as a priesthood of all believers. He is saying that we should have no leader. He is saying that we should have no theologian to tell us what God says or to interpret his word. Now, remember Moses. Moses had been there right at the bush. He had seen there the the glow, the the glory on his face was there. And Korah says, you know what, Moses, you're nothing special. We all have the same thing. Now, if, if we had to equate this to something today, it would be like coming to church. Okay, here we are. And uh, one of the third graders is in worship, and he stands up and says, I think this is what this passage means, and he tells us what it means. And then a uh, high school senior stands up and says, no, no, I think this passage means this. And then uh, one of the engineers stands up and says, no, you two have it all wrong, it means this. And then I stand up and say, sorry guys, you don't have it right, it means this. And we all, at the end of the day, we all go, you know what, each of those opinions is valid. And they each have their own understanding of Scripture, and we need to honor that. That's what Korah is after. Okay, He wants to take Moses 
off of this leadership pedestal. And ultimately, he wants to put himself up there. But he's doing it by saying, we all know what God wants. We can all understand him. Well, my friends, yes, we can. His word is very clear. Um, but, you know, we're each given different gifts. You don't ask me to design an airplane. Okay? Why? Because I don't know how it works. Well, I know that the top of the wing creates lift if you go fast enough and it goes up in the air. You don't ask me to, to be a rocket scientist. You don't ask me to represent you in the courthouse. Okay? Before the judge. You have people whose skills have been developed in those areas. And Korah says, Moses, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Okay? Because we all can understand what God wants. Yes, we can all read the plain things of Scripture. But there are things that are hard and difficult, okay? Things that we need challenged on, things that we need help in understanding. So, in fact, Korah makes a charge against Moses that in reality he is guilty of. The end of verse 3, you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord. That's where Korah wants to be. And by taking... By accusing Moses of it, he's taking the spotlight off of himself. Well, the short version of this is judgment comes upon them. Uh, Flip over a page to verse uh, 31. Then it came about as he finished speaking all these words that the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. A bad end. Because here was Moses and they said, don't believe Moses, believe us. And they led a rebellion against Moses and the things of God. Now, as I said earlier, in Jewish history, these are the three, the triumvirate of evil, these three, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They all represent people who led others away from the Lord because they thought they knew better than what the Lord said. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? No one gets to the Father except through me. There's no other means of getting to heaven. There's no other means of pleasing the Lord except through Jesus Christ. So how do you want to get to the Lord? Okay, How do you want to please him? Your own way or the way that he says? Well, remember Cain, remember Balaam, remember Korah. They're all bad because in their hearts they want to do it their own way way their own way they exchange the truth of christ for error selfish error well jude's adversaries apparently are rejecting apostolic authority and want to get to god their own way and he equates them with these three groups okay with these three groups and he talks about in jude verse 10 he talks about how they are destroyed Well, their destruction comes in the future. But Jude uses the past tense of the word to show that it's a guarantee. A guarantee. Much like in Romans chapter 8 when he says those who are justified. Sorry. I have to to read it. Uh For... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might 
be the firstborn among many brethren, whom he predestined, he also called. These are all past tense. Those whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, these also glorified. When does glorification come? It comes when we're in heaven. But it is spoken of in the past tense as a done deal for those who are in Christ. The same thing Jude talks about here. It's in the past tense. It's a done deal for those who rebel against the Lord. Okay? Godless men are bent on destroying God's people. It's the same story, different characters. It's been happening since the beginning. It will happen until Christ returns. So let's pray. Lord, in your mercies and grace, you have called us and you have shown us in your word. These things are plain and clear and simple. If you say do it this way, then we are to do it that way. Our hearts must be right before you. They can't be filled of, with longing for the things of this world. Yeah, there are things of this world that you bless us with. There are gifts that you give us and, and opportunities. And, and uh, sometimes, Lord, we are blessed in, in fabulous ways in this world. But first and foremost, our hearts must be right before you. They can't be selfish. They can't want to get to you on our own terms. You have laid out how we may come into your presence, and that is only through Jesus Christ. Lord, for all of those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, it is a burden upon each of us because we are the instruments by which you communicate the life-changing message of Christ to them. You will put people in our lives, and it is our job to tell them about Christ, to show them the things of Christ, to demonstrate them to them the mercies that you have shown us. Lord, make us aware of these things, that we might walk humbly before you in obedience in a longing to know you ever, ever in an ever greater form. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is 576, Thou Whose Purpose Is to Kindle. 576, let's stand as we sing.
are we ready to let thy sharpened word disturb us? Heavenly Father, disturb us this week, we pray, that we might be mindful of the places in our own hearts where we've said, I want to do it this way, no matter what God says, that we would repent and return, focus upon what you say, or that we would not think of you higher than anything else, or that we would not place ourselves higher than where you have placed us, that we might all be in submission and walk in humbleness before you. Lord, send us out that we would be disturbed by your word this week. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.